Welcome to TuneIn YRDSB, inspiring learning through storytelling. So welcome to uh, TuneIn YRDSB. My name is Andrew McConnell and I am the current coordinator for First Nation Métis Inuit Education with the York Region District School Board. And I'm joined by some very special people from my team and I'm actually going to go this way, and I know nobody can see which way I'm pointing, but for those of you who don't know, I'm going the Anishinaabe way, which means I'm going clockwise uh, around. Who's joining me at the table? Kyle Herbert, and I'm a consultant on the team. Michelle Zanti, also a consultant alongside Kyle. <coughs> Carolyn Marchand, consultant. Cheryl Jacobs, I'm one of the Indigenous student advisors. And um, we're here today almost two years uh, to the date after we did this sort of discussion before. And back then we talked about the state of Indigenous education and where we think it's going. Um, and, you know, it was in the middle of the pandemic at the time and we were all trying to figure out, you know, not just Indigenous education, but education period where it's going. So I think it's, it's actually kind of prescient that we're going to have a conversation today and really just kind of talk about, you know, what now, what next. Um, but I do think I, I kind of want to look back at what we've accomplished, I would think, in the last couple of years. And, and really for that, now I'm, I'm just gonna kind of throw these questions at folks. But uh, I don't know, Carolyn, what do you think about the last couple of years? Just because, you know, you were, you've been with me the longest on this team. Yeah, reflecting back to our initial conversation during that pandemic where we were wanting to head, and I think a lot of change is occurring uh, within the system. Um, I think educators are feeling, I think, a, a sense of urgency, right, to take on the work. Um, and we're seeing that in a lot of the requests that we receive through emails and conversations. So they want to do the work, but I think we're still in a, in a um, situation where they're not sure where to go. And we're still really heavily focused on content and that content in relation to what has been done to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. Um, and so looking forward, it's how do we move uh, people beyond that content and towards more of a pedagogical shift? Michelle, you were, you were brand new to the team when we had that conversation. So what do you think it's been like this last couple of years? You've tried to get up to speed, find your niche and all those pieces you've been dealing with. Yeah, I think I agree with Carolyn when I first uh, listening in that podcast and, and what people thought was, you know, what was Indigenous education at the time and, and now the evolution to being able to put it in words in a, in a better framework for educators to understand um, rather than, again, speaking about those issues or circumstances that have happened to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. Now we're trying to move people into teaching for, and I think that's been a, a really positive change because um, it has educators thinking, again, about pedagogy and not just content, but we do really need to move them out of that, you know, I'm trying to put Indigenous gardens or Indigenous books and um, and those, those pieces. So seeing beyond just 
the content being yeah. sprinkled in to other courses. Yeah, they're looking for, oh, I see it in the curriculum, so therefore I can teach it now. And, um, you know, oh, it's connected to the land, so therefore it must be indigenous. And so we're trying to move into, no, no, uh, let's, let's look at students as individuals and humans um, and try and teach to them. And I think we got feedback once from someone that said, what, that's all I have to do is teach to students? And that was, that was like a big aha moment for someone, right? Mm -hmm. Not teach the curriculum, but teach to students. So Kyle, you're brand new to the team, coming to the end of your first year. What kind of stood out for you? Yeah, I think Carolyn and Michelle both touched on the pedagogy piece. Um, I think about learning alongside and having those pieces incorporated into what that looks like in the classroom. I know every educator is in a different position teaching different subject matter so creating pathways for them to access how to do that in a good way i think about one of the projects um, for community circles and restorative circles implementing those pieces and doing it with the knowledge of those communities the indigenous communities across canada and across the world and a lot of it is that shift in mindset right in i think about as an educator, what has shifted my mindset or pedagogy when I was in the classroom? And what are those things that we can do to support educators to do that in their work? And Cheryl, you've been with us now six months? Yes. The newest team member. Mm -hmm. And again, it's, it's amazing when you think about it because the conversations we were having two years ago, you were outside the system. Yes. And watching, seeing things going on. What Now that you've stepped into the system, what kind of stands out for you that you're seeing? Actually, you know, meeting some the existing some existing students that I have on the list, that we have on our list between me and Victoria. Of course, you know, they have some of their friends with them who I believe are not self-identified. But just the, um, I guess you would say, the, uh, the surprise at having that support of what me and Victoria do, as well as the, the consultants, of even having this team. They're just like, I didn't know that. Um, we had one student last week um, say to me, oh, I wish I would have known more of this. I could really have you come out and help me with some of the things that I do. And I said, well, I can't come in and be your show and tell <laughs> for what, you, what your project is. You know, I said, but I mean, if you have any questions around um, the sharing of whatever knowledge that you have of um, that side of you, that culture, I said, I can definitely fill in those pieces. But it's just the amazement that I see with them because there's just like, wow, you know, I can't believe that we get to some of the workshops that we put on for them, like the moccasin making. They just loved it. They really, really loved learning that and um i guess it's a little bit not surprising to me but you know it's a little bit i guess i i get taken back a little bit because i just assume that some of them know that part of who they are and they don't know anything nothing um again with another student last week with the moccasin making she wanted to dance so bad and I said, well, do you know anything about, and she said, no, but I want to dance, you know? And um, I said, do you, what is your level of knowledge? And she said, I really don't know anything about who I am. And I said, wow, okay. 
that takes me aback. I'm always kind of, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't come in with a preconceived notion that I have that people should know who they are. But at the same time, I didn't really know coming into to this realm of work, the level of them not knowing who they are. And I think that's probably the best segue for what comes next, because that is what the school board doesn't do. It doesn't provide any knowledge to Indigenous students about what it is to be Indigenous. And it's really hard for Indigenous students, especially in the southern parts of the board, because they're so spread out and they're so overwhelmed by people who are not. And I mean, I've been involved in conversations this year with Anishinaabek Education System, with Chiefs of Ontario, um, with community members, those sorts of things. And and it and it really is, heck, even even on Friday, I was listening to somebody from from Thunder Bay, uh, working at Matawa uh, Education Center, talking about what their next goal is, which is that we need to start teaching our <coughs> students our ways first and then drawing the connections between it to curriculum, which I think, Michelle, is kind of like what we were talking about. Everybody right now is trying to sprinkle our stuff into it. And actually, I feel like there's this sort of changing of tide right now that so many Indigenous folks are like, you know, this has been okay. It's nice to be seeing some of our stuff in the curriculum, but actually I want to learn dance. I want to learn how to make this. I want to learn how to do this. Um, you know, all the urban kids I know have never been hunting. They don't have the slightest clue what it is to hunt and what it means to even know that much information about an animal or fishing, right? You know how hard it is to go fishing when you live in, you know, downtown, you know, you just pick anything along the Highway 7 corridor, right? Like it's, it's difficult. You can't get to Neural Lake. So thinking on that and knowing that that's probably the next stage uh, what do people think would be our next steps? Like, how are we going to make that possible for kids? I think, you know, at this point, moving forward, I think from what I've been seeing and experiencing that I think it's very critical to actually really have that um, cultural component with for them because it gives them a sense of identity and it roots them in knowing who they are. Uh, I think it would be very difficult to go through life knowing in name who you are but but not knowing any of the culture of not knowing um what ceremony is um, or anything like that and that would really make them feel very unanchored or i guess maybe questioning you know who they are and i think maybe some students don't come forth about the lack of knowledge of who they are is because they actually probably feel that oh I should I should know this but they don't and then meeting some of the parents having even the parents sit there and say I wasn't raised in the culture I don't know that um, and it's just like wow you know to really um, to see that and I guess you know I guess coming in with my own bias again as I explained before I've never had my identity questioned and I grew up with those things, you know, those things, I guess, maybe sometimes I take for granted. But it really is eye opening to see that and to see how how much that is greatly needed to, I really believe, help balance them out and give them a much higher success rate in, in graduating and going off to college by knowing who they are and having, I guess, maybe a taking pride in that part of who they are, because I think sometimes um, 
some students who, who aren't self-identified and don't come out and say anything. Because there is a lack of, I would say, um, imagery, positive imagery in the school, that they don't feel comfortable enough to self-identify, you know? And um, when maybe some of those conversations they've had with their peers and their peers not knowing that they're um, Indigenous or Métis or whatnot, um, that they hear some negative feedback about that. And that and then just reinforces them to not, you know, even, even want to mention that they're you know, they have um, Indigenous uh, First Peoples heritage with them, you know, like, I mean, that just kind of closes them up all the more. So, and it makes them, I guess, kind of shameful to want to reach out to, to kind of know who they are. And, and that becomes a burden for them because it's like, I have to carry the weight and the shame of our people. So that's, um, yeah, I really think that more positive imagery really needs to happen within the schools for um, for these students to feel comfortable and proud of themselves instead of hiding themselves. You just described my school experience, Cheryl. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Basically. Um, you know, for myself growing up in the city and being urban Indigenous and what that meant for my schooling, it's exactly what you're saying. Disconnect from culture. There was no positive imagery, right? Um, and I think for the students that I've interacted with, I know for one that I taught in grade eight, he self-identified after knowing what was possible, mm -hmm. right, in those spaces. And so I think for those students, it's exactly what you're saying. Um, making sure that there is those places and, and those things are seen and the contemporary piece, right? That it's not just what's being taught in the curriculum because Andrew mentioned it's the historical pieces, it's all those things. To me, the orange flag has nothing to do, the Every Child Matters flag has nothing to do with what the 21st represents, right? And so how do we counteract that in the classroom? What other stories are being brought in? How are those things being elevated at the classroom level? Not just where it says explicitly in the curriculum, here's where you talk about First Nations, Métis and Inuit people. But I think it also goes, you know, um, one step further with the educators. I mean, I don't want to put the onus on them, but at the same time, knowing and coming into, I think some of the attitudes they have is that when they teach parts of the curriculum, um, they come from a, a place where they, they're not assuming that there are any Indigenous self-identified students, or not even self-identified, but Indigenous students, FNMI students, in their classroom. So they're teaching from like a, a standpoint of um, that none of those students exist in their classroom. You know, I really believe that educators need to really educate themselves a little bit more on um, Indigenous history. I think too, even contemporary issues today, you know, I was that's what I was gonna say was the contemporary things are also important. The other one, too, is how do you protect your indigenous students from other students? Because I think a lot of people miss this, right? Like they'll bring it up in class. They'll teach it to the best of their ability and a student will self-identify. And then what happens is they step out of the class and now they're in the hall or they're in the, the schoolyard and it becomes a point of, you know, a point to be 
pushed on by students who want to get a rise out of somebody or even some people who carry their own or their parents or their communities, you know, racism towards indigenous people then turn it on kids. We've seen it, you know, in the past with kids here, my own children experienced it. Um, and I watched, you know, it did, it did some, some real heavy damage to, to one of my children um, to the point where they stopped, you know, telling people their name, they kept it all very quiet. Um, their experience certainly from grade four to grade eight was miserable. Um, and of course the kid doesn't tell you and we see this all the time that, you know, children will keep this from their parents because they don't want their parents to have the burden or they don't want. And I think in my case, they didn't want me going in to the school. You know, there's those pieces. And, and that is all very in the now. Right. Like none of this has changed. And no. And I think also at the same time, which is kind of uh, maybe borderline racism, um, very, very small part of it. But is that fascination Mm. Upon learning that exoticism, yes, that that uh, you are FNMI. I mean, I get it here. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and it's just like I always try to ask that question when uh, some of the meetings that I've gone into with, um, whether that be human resources or guidance, guidance heads, and I've always asked, "What is your fascination with us? Yeah. What is it that fascinates you?" And I really believe that some of them have went a good portion of their life believing that we didn't exist anymore. Yeah, I, I've seen that with actually many educators being surprised. And even the fact that we don't look the way they expect us to. Yes. That throws a lot of people off. I mean, the fact that you can have, I mean, I've, I say to people all the time, right? I have a friend who's black and Ojibwe, right? I've taught a student who is Cree and Persian. And because they have a Persian last name, everybody assumes the student is Persian. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when that student and I talk, we talk as two indigenous people. And I think that throws a lot of folks off. Um, this idea that we've been here this whole time and we've been intermarrying this whole time with all sorts of people, um, that there's this mixing of cultures and, and the way you look and the way you express, not to mention the fact that it's 2023, you know, we all wear jeans, T-shirts, baseball hats, um, you know, drive pickup trucks. You know, I often wonder with other other cultures, do they hold that like, uh, I mean, is it just a norm for them to know that their children um, when they grow up are, are, you know, there's a good percentage that they're not going to marry into their own culture. And, and but there's no, I guess, that fascination piece that, you know, of of having a partner that's outside of their culture but it seems so like i said like that that wow factor it's like oh really she's 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 indigenous and i find that very I'm, I'm, almost, I'm fascinated myself about that you know and i guess because i'm on the other the other side of the spectrum so to speak so i mean i guess it's a, a bit of a fascination but not as not as much as the fact that Yes, I'm still here. We are still here. We will always be here. But it's just, um, I guess, for myself, wanting to know their social norms. I think it's strange. Like, if you were to find a First Nation person living in Europe, it would, it would seem like, you know, wow, that's out of the ordinary. To find a First Nation person living in, you know, what we call Canada, shouldn't seem so out of the norm because this is where we're from and yet it, it's been it's been pushed so much to the side 
that that's where we are. And I think that maybe that's, I don't know, is that part of what we have to do next? Is that what we have to undo? Now I'm looking across the table at Michelle and Carolyn. <laughs> I mean, I'm just smiling because it's, uh, it's like there's a real lack of awareness. I don't know. I've been flipping through, you know, some of those older movies and some of those older TV shows. And you can see the erasure so clearly through media, right? You see it, you know, like... Uh, the, some of the things that wouldn't be allowed on TV today are, are, are so clear. So, okay, so you learned that we're here still and you're surprised. And yet every year you're surprised, right? So that's the part that I don't get. Like when the apology happened, right? right. People this were- This is 2008. Right, so people were like, oh my goodness, they're still here? Okay, now we have to do truth and reconciliation. You know, now we have to actually do something. But every year when, like, you know, thinking this is my second year on this team, all the professional learning where we've been talking about, you have to teach for them and people are like, they're in your spaces? Oh my goodness, like they're still so surprised. And, you know, it's 2023, like, like that's, that idea. idea, yeah, that idea that you have to teach for them. People are like mind blown. Like, I never thought that I would have to teach for them. Like, uh, we always thought we were teaching about them. Are they really in our schools? Like, they are mind blown um, by that. And that's very strange. Well, I think, you know, listening to Cheryl saying that our own children don't know who they are. When I look back to surveys that we've done with uh, secondary students, right, who are who are taking the NBE course, the Contemporary Voices, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit English course. And we ask them, you know, reading the text, what have you learned about uh, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, and how has it affected your relationship with others in your school? And kids will often say, I don't know anybody, right, who is Indigenous. Um, other students have said, it's taught me nothing. I still don't know who they are. I only know what's been done to them. And so I almost see that they're, we're working on uh, two, two things simultaneously. Yeah. We're trying to provide supports to our own children yeah. within the system to learn who they are and have pride in who they are, while at the same time trying to educate non-Indigenous people within the system, right, and, and move them away from those, uh, the single narrative. Um, of constantly uh, presenting the the issues, right, which continue to oppress us. And then that hyper-visualization of that student sitting in the space when they're only talking about um, the negative things that have been done to us, right? And so they're almost working against one another. A student can't have pride uh, because they don't want to identify as the victim and only ever seen as the victim. And then students want to get to know who we are, but they're not offered that opportunity. And so, you know, Andrew and I have talked a lot about having a teaching lodge or a space for students and families to go to learn their culture and to engage in their culture. Um, and then, you know, having the opportunity for others in the system to also come and see what that is. But we're still trying to it's like we're having, like, it's like we're, we're battling two fires. It's we like are. exactly like you we said, are. right? Yeah. To, to bring that, um, that cultural piece to students as well as uh, educate the educator <laughs> that, yes, we're still here. We're very much still here. And, I mean, statistics show that we are the fastest um, demographics yeah, growing, growing yeah. population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, how do you do it at the same time, right? When we're yeah. trying to, to ensure that educators don't replicate the stereotypes, 
but we're still trying to service our students, right, our kids. I have to share with you my daughter. Um, she spent the year in England, and it's the first time she has said she's proud to be Métis because she's in a space where she gets to write her own narrative. She gets to tell people who she is. They're not coming with preconceived notions. They've heard of, of First Nation, right? And that's all they know. They've never really experienced anyone who is Métis or Inuit. They don't know what that is. And so she has had the joy, and it has been joy for her, to be who she truly is. And so coming back, she'll be coming back on the 21st, interestingly enough, right, that day. So she's, I think, torn. Um, in returning home and how is she going to continue to be able to engage in, in becoming this beautiful, independent, confident Métis woman? And what is that going to look like when she returns here to Canada? Mm. And it makes me sad to think that she's had to leave her home to really take pride in who she is. I wonder if some of that too has to do with the age because I'm thinking of my own daughter who, who went away to school this year and she didn't go as far as England. She went to Montreal. But even for her there to experience being Indigenous in a different space was interesting um, because she was still able to speak up more on her own. She was in her own space, in her own, own place. And even to start to recognize for herself her own behaviors that are ours, right? She told the story one time about being on the subway in, in Montreal and there was uh, there was a First Nation man across from her. And she had a she had a bag of McDonald's. She was with her boyfriend at the time. And the, they started talking. And, uh, and the man at one point kind of looked at her and said, uh, can I have that? And he was pointing at the McDonald's bag. And of course, Bella was done eating. She still had food in there and she was done. She says, yeah, sure, here. She gave it to him. Uh, it was after she left the subway, she's walking back and her boyfriend kind of looked at her and said, you just gave, that guy just asked you for food and you just gave it to him. He says, well, yeah, I wasn't going to eat it. So what else would I do with it? Obviously, I mean, he wanted it. And, and it's funny because that's that way of being that is just so normal. Um, you know, somebody sees something like, oh, that's really cool. Say, I'd love to have that. And you do that moment where you're like, am I going to give it away or am I still using it? Um, and, and it throws non-native people right off. They're like, oh my God, I can't believe the audacity. And it's like, yeah, but they're not demanding it. They're just asking. And yes, I've always grown up with that where we've always been a very trade. Yeah. You know, trading, it's like, oh, I really like that t-shirt. It's like you see something and it's yeah. like, what can I trade you for it? This is yeah. what I have. What you do know? you need? Yeah, and we still do that today, like especially with our, um, you know, those who are dancers with regalia. Yeah. I know I do. I'm always like, well, I got this that I'm not using, and this is what I'm needing. You have that. Do you want to make a trade? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's something that we still do very much, right? Well, wouldn't it be great to see that reciprocity within the classroom as well? Yes. As opposed to educators extracting our knowledge and plopping it into the curriculum, right? Because they're extracting it from the actual culture itself and the way that it was intended to be and and our way of being and knowing and so when they extract it it loses all of that meaning and so yeah it would be great for people to understand really what reciprocity is and what it means and what it looks like within within our spaces as educators i think um you know it's nice that we have some of those um posters that talk about what the seven grandfather teachings are how many of them actually really look at it and really because really if you think about the seven grandfathers it's just common sense it's common human sense to you know like for respect 
right? But everything's being assessed all the time, right? So we're a system that's driven by an end product to be graded. And so how do you act upon common sense when you're, it, it's, you're always performing. So as students too, they're constantly performing and they're constantly being assessed and they're being graded. And the, so even though it's something that you would just do, but again, it's that's not, a colonial mindset. Exactly, but that's what we're really, in. Yeah. That's what we're in. To what the system has yeah. produced up until this point. And how does that fit in, you know, going forward with how we as um, FNMI peeps, <laughs> I'm trying to get away from that, yeah. you know, using the word indigenous and self, I, I keep trying to say first peoples. Yeah. Um, we were saying Okwehoe last week. Right. We really threw people for a loop. So I'm like, that's a brand new word. I've We're never seen it. Scribbling it down. Yeah, right. And I'm like, Okwehoe, it's not even my language, right? It's it's Mohawk. Um, but I love it yeah. because A, it's 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 from here. It's from this, you know, it's it's been in this space for a long time. Um, and it, it kind of captures it because it's not English. But it speaks to a concept that's in English, that's, you know, the idea of first peoples or original peoples or, and the fact that it isn't even tied to one nation. I mean, it comes out of one nation's language, but they're not tying it to one nation. They mean all first peoples. And again, that recognition that we have all of these long standing, you know, again, traditions. It's about recognition too. And I just find it kind of falls flat when it comes to FNMI students as well as um, staff there's no understanding there there is no understanding. you know and yeah. I mean it's not that I'm looking for sympathy personally just an understanding and an awareness because I, I look at that as a day of grieving mm -hmm. you know the legacy we all carry you know being some of us being um, second third generation survivors of residential school to me, even though all of my family came home, thankfully, but I think of all those children that didn't, that's still a day of grieving, of yeah. grief for me. I don't, I mean, it's great that there's awareness being spread about it. Now, there's a difference between awareness and um, just putting it out there, you know, like, okay, yeah, we'll make mention of that. You have to put the context behind it, the, the historical context, because if you don't, and I think this is where some educators fall flat, they don't really know the historical content that comes with it. So it's kind of like, okay, well, all the other schools, it's a trend, so this is what we need to do. It's not a trend. Um, it's a legacy that um, FNMI students uh, staff, teachers, uh, you know, us in general, we carry this legacy that we never wanted. And it's an acknowledgement that, you know, in our own, within our own every day, you know, when I, when I do my prayers and my smudge in the morning, I always say good morning to my father. Um, but I always remember what he went through, you know, and then um, to think, I don't know, that's not a day for me that I could sit there and, 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 you know, be in that moment because for me it's a day of sadness. That's all I can say is it's a day of sadness for me. I can't speak for others, but I can certainly, you know, say that that, I think, needs to change. Well, I even think for, so the very first one that happened, my son was in his last year of, um, he was in grade eight. 
And of course, the teacher goes through the process. They do the big meeting. It was online because it was COVID. And, you know, he's sitting in this meeting. And I guess it was good because he was able to talk with me afterwards, right afterwards. But he just had that realization that nobody quite got it. They all put on the airs of being sad. But when they were talking about the kids who didn't come home, you know, they still didn't understand it. And for, for my kid, you know, he comes down to me afterwards and says, they, they don't really understand, do they? And I went, no. He says, for every one of those children who didn't come home, that equates to 10, 20, 30 people who never got born. Because for him, he knows how long it's been for residential school. And he knows how many people, you know, owe their life to my grandmother living. Yeah. And so for him, he's like, it's not, you know, at the time it was at 100 and 143, 100, I, I don't even know where we started. Where was it? It was just, it was like over 150 kids. Well, for him, he was like, yeah, but for each one of those children, there was 10 people who didn't get born. Right. And so he knows automatically it's a factor that goes up. And so for him, he really understands the gravity, especially when you talk about, yeah, we are the fastest growing demographic, yet we are the smallest demographic in all of this area called Canada. And I think personally, we're always going to remain small because, you know, we are a nation that allows people to come from other parts of the world, which is a good thing. There's yes. space. But I don't think that people really understand truly the impact that it has on us, you know, because we're constantly having to share what little we have with more and more and more. Since you think about that conversation we just had about sharing, right? Well, you know, I mean, it's funny because when you look at other countries and you look at the original peoples of that country, it's, you know, it's, it's there, it's visible. And I think this is where some of that goes wrong is because when history is being taught in school, it's being taught from the victor's side, which would be the French or... Except know. that they're not. That's there the whole thing. No, that's what I'm saying, There's right? no victory. I know. That's the whole thing because we weren't a conquered people. We yeah. were allies. Yeah. And every victory they won was won with us. I know, but right? our like, part written in history is very yeah. small. Yeah. And I think one of the things that... I think if that narrative was to be changed, like if, if, mm -hmm. if all of our history books were to be changed and have, I mean, it is in itself because a lot of uh, First Peoples are now rewriting history. Well, including it, right? It's not even about rewriting. It's just about adding us in. Well, yeah. Yeah. But we're, we're telling a truth yeah. from our side as yes. allies yeah. of what really went on. Because, you know, when you look at history, again, history is told by the victor. So of course there's going to be embellishments. It's not even just the victory. How it's the victorious. guy who the printing press. Yeah, right? <laughs> so but I think that's where I think a lot of things would change if that if that was narratives in in the history books of what we've been, you know, what has been used yeah. were changed. And it's funny because again, I I always get a kind of a um, a laugh out of some people when they're like, "Well, you know, um as Canada's history and you being part of that, it's just like, no, I'm not part of Canada's history. You are part of my history, even though your grandparents or your great, great grandparents have been here, you know, for your fourth, fifth generation, it doesn't matter. You still are part of my history. Those, your parents or whatever your grandparents, they are part of my history. 
And I think that's where the imbalance comes from. And I really think that's where things get skewed because the majority of, of the Canadian population with the influx of, of uh, newcomers is that's where it, it's imbalanced. They're looking at us like we were a conquered people, that we were uncivilized. They don't know that, you know, how, I mean, okay, yes, we'll put it in. Everybody's heard this, that if it wasn't for us, a majority of the first newcomers that came across, they wouldn't have survived. But nobody says anything about that, right? Well, I think too, though, that's where popular media is is a big issue. And even that concept of, we'll go back right to, why don't they recognize us? Well, they don't recognize us because what they see in popular media is what popular media puts forward. And what I don't think a lot of people actually understand, and I'll go to Yellowstone for this, a lot of the quote-unquote First Nation people in that television show, which is being filmed, well, has been filmed for the last seven years, aren't even Indigenous, right? Yes. Like main characters, right? They're they're from somewhere else. And that's a long-standing history in Hollywood. You know, the even the idea of the crying, when I was a kid, they had the crying, the crying Native guy in the headdress and stuff like that, you know, watching all the pollution and stuff. And people don't even understand the guy's Italian. Right, and so and so you have people come up, and I've literally had people say, "I look more indigenous than you," and I have to kind of look at them and say, "Well, that should tell you a lot about what you know about indigenous people if you, who is not indigenous, feel you look more indigenous than me, who is actually indigenous. You've got a disconnect, and I know I'm white passing. I there's no there's no ifs or buts about it, but just even that concept of who is and who isn't. I mean. You yourself even had this year, right? Where somebody said to you, like, oh, I, I didn't know you were indigenous. You, you don't, you you don't, don't look, look it. it. And I was like, of all the people on the team, it's like. <laughs> and so right there, they're so ensconced in what a native person needs to look like exactly. and the backdrop and everything exactly. that they can't see past it. And that's why our students don't self-identify as well. Yes. Right, that fear yeah. of not being accepted or believed or being enough. Mm-hmm. I or hear my again, own kids say that. A fascination becoming mm-hmm. the token in, in yes. the classroom, Completely. which I've experienced yeah. um, in school. Was you know when I moved to the city when I was ten. Um, in the school, we only had um, four. It was another brother sister that was there was me and my brother. And when I just cringed every time social studies came in history because my teacher made me feel like I was representing all um, First Peoples across Canada. Oh, Cheryl would, and I just, and and it would just put the spotlight on me. And yes, I encountered racism. I got called squaw. And I actually got called, or I actually got told, "You, you need to go back to your land. I'm like, I'm on my land. <laughs> you know, but I mean, it, and but that's where the racism being pointed yeah. out, yes. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it's something that I couldn't um, hide from because, like I said, I get asked all the time, mm-hmm. are you Indigenous? And I always answer what gave it away. But that's that thing with self-identification because once it's out of the bag, it's it happened to me, right? You know, because my dad was dark. And so, and it's funny because I grew up in the 70s and I guess people just felt natural like, oh, Andrew's dad's kind of dark. And they would ask my mom. My mom would say, well, yeah, he's, he's, he's Ojibwe. And then, like you said, at, once it's there, every single class you go to, the second we got to do settlers and natives, 
Andrew knows, right? And I got put on the spot. I, it's a good thing I, I read because I still remember when they were talking about the Six Nations when I was a kid um, and they, the teacher literally threw me under the bus. Andrew, you know the names of all the nations, which I'm Ojibwe, <laughs> so I wouldn't, except that I had read a book the week before and I was able to kind of pull it out. Um, and I guess maybe the only reason I read the book is because I was, hey, there's something about us, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I don't know. Does everybody else go through that when they were growing up? Yeah, I think for me, I, I can clearly remember as a teenager identifying to people and regretting it in school spaces especially and it becoming, you know, the butt of jokes or the only thing that people wanted to know about you, yeah. right? Um, I can clearly remember that as a teenager. It's funny, I grew up, uh, one of my very good friends who I'm still quite good friends with was is also Ojibwe and we never had a conversation about it. Neither one of us ever spoke about it um, because in North Bay you were either white or you were native. That was it. There was no, there wasn't any other where, where I was growing up, there wasn't any other diversity per se and it wasn't, no one cared because there was such a mix of people, but it just wasn't something that was in conversation. Um, But then uh, when she got married and had children, um, she went and got her status back. And again, now it's like, why did we never talk about this, right? And so we both, she she works uh, for the treaty office in Toronto and we both talk about it now, laughing at how like, you know, we grew up all this time and we were, we just it just wasn't you just didn't want to be it it like you said now it's once it's out of the bag um it doesn't ever go back in i think maybe also to you know thinking about things why when you mention the word canada why first nations metis inuit uh Inuit people don't come to mind first and i and i you know looking at other countries that have indigenous you know like the maori or yeah. whatnot is because we didn't live civilized as they according to uh, the newcomers we didn't live in these um, houses constructed you know we lived off the land by you know very simple means why would we be anything other than that so when you think of Canada everybody thinks of oh this is a place built on multiculturalism Mm -hmm. Um, again you know we probably come in third we get a third mention you know, oh yes. Section 32 of the Constitution <laughs> after everybody else. Yeah, <laughs> right? So I think that's what it is when you look at it because when you think of New Zealand, you know, do people actually think of the Maori people? And yet the Maori, I think, are ahead of us in, in the game that they have been very much out there pushing for those things. Mm. And, and I think they've also, and again, this is, me, this is me looking from the outside. I'd love to sit with... That's one of those things I wish I could do. I would love to sit with different First Nations peoples from around the world yes. to say, so what's it like in your space? What's it like? Like I look at Hawaii right now and I'm seeing all the rebirth and the really standing up strong. I'm watching similar protests like on the top of the mountain so they don't do the telescope, similar to what you know was happened here through Standing Rock and Wet'suwet'en and, and it's just all of the past. But I mean, even you know, 1492 Landback Lane I would love for all of us from time to time to be able to sit around and have those conversations as native peoples of particular lands and to say, what's your experience and what are you doing? And to start swapping those those concepts of how did you get where you are and to really start to kind of 
to kind of have this, you know, thinking back and forth between indigenous peoples around the lands, those who are dealing with settler colonialism. Well, yeah, it's like, you know, what worked for you and taking that yeah. as, as a model piece, definitely. Um, I've always thought that that was really great because it reminds me of um, the Rainbow Warriors prophecy. Right. Where all of the, the indigenous folks of Mother Earth will come together and um, I don't want to say save Mother Earth, but with their knowledge that they bring um and change whatnot. practice yeah exactly right and i think that, that i think that's slowly happening on a very small scale that um because we're speaking up now because mm. we're pushing back that some people are taking sitting up and taking notice of it it's just like wow yeah i guess I, because after you have a conversation with somebody who has no knowledge of the history of who we are they actually go away enlightened i never knew and it's like well of course why would you right so um and it totally changes their perspective it really does before working in this role i was coming into schools but doing it more of an engagement series um coming in and i remember meeting this one with the peel region uh, i remember meeting this one uh, world religion teacher and uh, I did, uh, my workshop was history through an indigenous lens, lens. So I went, did the timeline and, you know, whatever, and shared some uh, stuff from past and current, right up to current, how things were. And at the end of that, um, he came up and he said to me, which was very profound, he said, you know, I was raised Catholic. I have been always a, a practicing Catholic or Christian. He said, you know what, now I question I questioned my faith and I said I, I wasn't here that that wasn't my my whole point of coming here today was to make you question your faith but I wanted to share in all reality of how we view the world and 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 the history as we've experienced it you know I, I said this wasn't about shaming this wasn't anything about that it was just wanting to share our perspective and he said, but I never knew this. This wasn't taught to me in school when I was in school. And it really has made me question who I am now. And I said, well, I mean, I, I like the part that you're questioning yourself and maybe some of your belief systems. But I, I didn't, like, again, I, I'm sorry if I made you, you know, think that you shouldn't be Catholic or a Christian. You know, like, I, I'm not here to, to do that. Convert you know, or indoctrinate anybody into... To... Well, especially because there is nothing to convert to. <laughs> exactly, right? 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 It's not like we, we don't do religion. Um, I know, but half of the people would be like, you know, because yeah. it's, it, you know, the way we mm -hmm. think as Indigenous folks, we're free peoples, right? Yeah. So our thinking is free, you know, and it's always been that way, very open-minded. Yeah. And to have somebody all of a sudden come out with, with that yeah. kind of mindset, you know, their, their, their peers and their friends are going to start questioning, like, what changed in you? What flipped yeah, yeah. in you? When you talk about adults, and as you're, you're saying this, Cheryl, I'm thinking about how educators are in a space where they are learning this alongside students. But our students now have had the benefit of hearing from kindergarten, you know, and all the way through, they are already learning, but they're still educators who are are behind learning of their students and so kids are ready kids are ready for action but we're not providing them with any opportunities to make change right we're still trying to just fill them with the content and they're ready now like what does it actually mean 
to, to behave differently, right? It's like, I now know this, what am I going to do with it? And kids are at that point where they do want to take action and they want to make a difference. But I, I'm not sure educators are at that point themselves to say, well, this is what we can do, right? Like they also need to begin to see how to take action and to make make a difference and make that change. And yeah, so we're we're educating the students, we're educating the adults in the system, we're trying to provide that, you know, the culture for, for it. First Nations, Métis, and Inuit students. So it's a big ask, right? Indigenous education is so much more than I think people within York Region recognize. And for having such a small team and trying to provide, you know, for so many people, yeah, it, it can become overwhelming. And educators, like, they they have this responsibility to curriculum, right? So that's where they, right. they mm-hmm. feel that they have this responsibility to curriculum. And again, if we could shift them to have a responsibility for students um, and to stop focusing and, you know, this idea that, well, they must learn this before they learn this and then they learn this. And, um, you know, so we assimilate from kindergarten, right? Because mm-hmm. if you think in kindergarten, when you go to school, you, you most families share bathrooms rooms with men and women but then we go to school and we're like no girls go here boys go here no like we teach them that that is the way and so we begin to um we we begin that that sorting order and organization order hierarchy it happens the minute they enter kindergarten right they learn that is my teacher that's the person who holds all the knowledge in the world and um, we learn not to talk back or to fight back and we learn to stand in line we learn to assimilate and um and we're assimilated all the way out till grade 12. um and educators continue and maintain this same structure that they've always had but kids are different and kids are changing and Mm -hmm. so it's really kids that are uh, that we have to spend our time um, thinking about because educators are again they're they're thinking about how can I assess this how can I write a report card for it and we see a real disconnect between like they don't it's I oh I'm just teaching history it's not my history well I think it's also like you know I mean it's human nature that why should I invest in something if it's not going to benefit me and I think there's a lot of attitudes that go with that where it's like, well, okay, so I'm going to learn about um, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people, but what is it going to do for me knowing this knowledge? So it's not a benefit. So I really don't care. Right. As right? long as you know the treaty and you can write it on a test and you can do a check mark and do your checklist, then you've done your job. Right. Well, that's what that's I'm saying. And it's like, it, yeah. yeah, you know, and then going forth in their lives and their own personal lives, it's like, how does this knowledge still benefit me? Right. When you know when uh, when we were doing human resource training last year, right, and we were introducing um, at the beginning of every session, we would introduce ourselves, and we had people say like, "Oh, I don't have a really interesting history like you. I'm a tenth generation Canadian," and we're like. Um, you have the same history as me, (laughs) but they could not, they don't see themselves connected to that. Right. Again, it's that disassociation of back to that orange shirt day. Like, why don't they feel sad? Because they're not, it's not a part of them. Yeah. Why you see posts from schools with, you know, groups of educators smiling and celebrating the day when it is in fact a day of mourning, like Mm -hmm. Cheryl said. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And how difficult it is for mindset shifts within the system of education. Um, I know in some of the training that uh, I've led or co-led this year, where you're talking about just sitting with students 
and how that is a novel concept in itself to some people. Sitting in space with them and not being the person at the front who holds and carries exactly how the knowledge flows down to the students and then admitting to them when you're not in a space of the knowledge that you don't have that knowledge. And now we're going to do it together or you're going to teach me because I too can learn from you. Even though I'm the educator and you're the student in this space, I too can learn from you, right? And when you shift that dynamic, which is tough for some people, how does it benefit the students in the room? And how does it change what knowledge is brought in and how different things are seen as knowledge in school buildings? I think if you actually look at it, um, as I think either Michelle or Carolyn mentioned, that students from the time of um, kindergarten right up until high school, graduating out of high school, there's always been a bit of, um, even more so now, of that curriculum. Do you not find it ironic that these students would actually have more knowledge of FNMI than educators? Be well, because they've also had exposure to multiple ideas, well, yeah. hopefully. Hopefully, that's what, that's what the goal has been all the way along. Are yeah. we getting there? There's some places we know that all they get is residential school. And yeah. so there's that difficulty too. Well, they go from Orange Shirt Day, and I, I'm just in the middle of these conversations right now. So after Orange Shirt Day, we're going to do a walk for Wenjack. And then after a walk for Wenjack, we're going to do, and there's like another, right? And it's right. just from one trauma to another. Look at us in part Indigenous education. Look at how much content we are delivering all around trauma, right? Because to them, that is... That's Look how invested. Well, that's what it's become now. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. It certainly wasn't that when I was a kid. Because, um, again, we didn't talk about residential school. I mean, it was there. I think it was. But. it's Well, it is. It's it there. Was, and it still is yeah. Canada's dirty little secret. Sure. But, but, but just, I think about being Indigenous. You don't wake up every day talking about residential school, right? It's like we talk about what's going on. I, I made the joke earlier about the weather. But let's face it, it's like, you know, we do so much based on what is currently happening outside, right? Like, you know, when it turned March this year and the sap ran early, right? We're all talking about it. Nobody else is. Nobody else is, has any clue that the sap ran two weeks early this year. And meanwhile, we're all like, first of all, A, the sap ran two weeks early. And then we're all talking to the person we know who taps a tree going, can I get some? <laughs> right? um, and, 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 you know, when we get to October... Right? It'll be like, hey, is anybody going hunting? Or does anybody know who's going? By? Like, think about anybody the Inuit. Can, can I get, yeah. can I get right? some meat well, off of you? Well, yeah. So yeah. we did an event Just for Inuit. Just to have some chickens. Yeah. <laughs> we, did, we did an event for, for Inuit students. And one of the attractions was country food, which you yeah. it's actually illegal to sell our food in our own in our own stores on our own land and one of the main concerns from families in that space was their access to country food living in york region that was one of the first things they brought up when when they were asked you know how can you be supportive what are some of the issues you face yeah right yeah exactly because no one's getting the caribou exactly right? right you know i mean there is a bison farm we can get that, but we have to go to Oxbridge. a, yeah, well, yeah. No, or we have to go <laughs> to some specialty butcher. Yeah, that's right. Specialty yeah. butcher. And it costs and more. License to sell, and it's it's game. It's right? terrible. It's you can't, and you can't get the fur, and you can't get this. Right. Yeah. You can't get everything else that goes with it. Yeah. And here's the other thing. Yeah. So, so we're, 
Wernish Nabe from Ontario, bison, as much as I like it, is actually not a part of the diet. Deer is, moose is, and you know you can't you can't get those two things unless you know somebody a who had a tag or someone who's in community and got lucky this year right like there's those pieces and i mean and i have stories in my own family about people who've gone out hunting got their deer and the conservation office took it anyways yeah i think about fish right can we even get access to our fish like is white fish available when it should be can i get pickerel can i get the trout is all farmed trout um right our salmon is farmed yeah um, and the stuff that we actually get proper, because you know somebody, or you've been lucky enough to get out, it's we're worried about the mercury in it. Well, it's <laughs> funny because they, they just assume. I think the the uh, Canadian government, when it comes to food, um, wild game food, just assume. And I find that insulting that people who have are people who have been hunting for millennia <laughs> do not know the difference between a healthy and a diseased animal that's right i've seen you know yeah. going hunting and as soon as they cut open they were like oh yeah this ain't a good this is not and so what they do is they don't just throw it away no. it's like no okay you know what we can feed the meat to uh some of the dogs or we can leave it out for whatever yeah, you know whatever like local to eat but yeah we're going to take the hide we're going to take the yeah. antlers going to take the hoofs yeah. um you know all of that we might take the skull so you know i mean there's so many uses still because it's yeah. not, you know, I used to be, I used to feel really sad because when I was growing up in Kitagunsabi, <laughs> Guard River, um, we used to go swimming at the rapids as kids. And it was so sad because those used to, a lot of non-Indigenous people would go fishing there and we would see all kinds of fish rotting. The waste. A waste. Yeah. Rotting. Um, some of them were just the eggs were taken. Yeah. And nothing, and it, it, and in a way, or also on the same side of things, it made it bad for local people on the reserve that went swimming there because, as kids, it drew in bears. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, luckily, you know, knock on wood, that I've never, and you know, as a child, encountered bears, walking, uh, you know, back yeah. um, in the forest and and just having fun with your friends, but that was really sad to see. That was really sad to see that beautiful uh, salmon that they could have taken to eat. Instead, they just took the eggs and left it there. You know, even then, you could have taken the eggs and thrown the fish back in. But no, you decided to leave it there. You think of like an association like Hats for Hides. So my brother used to collect them, right? And so they're hunters that go out and hunt, but they don't want the hide and they just come and dump it on your front door. Like they, there's no, and they get a half. So at least you're, they're giving it, but they don't want the hide. They literally just want the meat. They want no other part of the animal. And that, that's, that is the state of some of the hunting, right? Yeah. I just read an article last night about um, the horseshoe crab, how they're being overfarmed because they're they're bled for yeah. their blood, right? Which yeah. has a, an anticoagulant agent in it, and it's just gotten right out of control. There's no regulation, regulation, but also cruelty-free way of doing it. And there's a certain way when you pick them up, you, you're not to pick them up by the tail. Because it does something and, and it could end up killing them if they flip over because they won't be able to flip back over. Right. But, yeah, um, there's a Fuji Film, a Japanese company, a company has a huge stake 
in the Atlantic um, horseshoe crab. And now their numbers are dwindling along with the birds because there was a certain red, red necked or something bird that ate their eggs that enabled them to be able to fly up to Alaska that helped them make the trip up there. So again, you can see like again, the lack of knowledge of, of food sources mm-hmm. just in general in the general population. I think kind of circling back just briefly to what Michelle and Kyle were talking about is that I don't, I'm not sure we understand the purpose of education. It's always been the industrial model. Yes. It's students in, get a worker out, where from our perspective, it's to answer the question of who am I, mm, right? Yeah. What are my gifts? Where am I going and who can help me? And I think all of our system needs to be aware that that's what every child is trying to answer, mm-hmm. right? Is who am I? Um, regardless of their identity. Not what do I want to do for a job? No. Yeah. Which is I, what they're what given. Guess. What do you yeah. want well, to do for a, a job? social conditioning, yes. right? Yeah. Which is really kind yeah. of... And I think industrial school is a great word because that's mm-hmm. what we, we still... You know, we manufacture. Yeah, yeah, we manufacture accountants, we manufacture doctors, we manufacture, mm-hmm. you think at all Google the... expertise. Right? It's, it's well, no, it's pretty soon we're going to be manufacturing chat GPT engineers. That's right. Right, people who ask chat GPT the right question. Mm-hmm. So with that said, last sort of thoughts, two minutes or less, which we all are not very good at. Um, <laughs> I'll just stay quiet on this. I'll go to Kyle. (laughs) You're not alone. Um, I'll go to Kyle. Just, you know, what do you think your thoughts are for the next, let's say, two years? I think as I look at it and I hear the thoughts in the room, one of my thoughts would be um, that piece around alongside and removing the barrier of time, both for educators. you know, sometimes the barrier, sometimes the detour, time for learning themselves and time for learning in the classroom with their students, right? Um, we know the curriculum is important, but it's not the end all and the be all. And when I think about my schooling experience, there's very few things that I could pull out of the curriculum that were meaningful to me in my however many years of education. But I remember the moments. Remember the human moments. I remember the moments where I was made to feel more human. And I think that should be our focus moving forward. Mm -hmm. Michelle? I think we should get away from the streamlining of the grades and assessment and have, uh, I'm dreaming bigger than you. (laughs) Just saying. You always are. (laughs) You know, Primary, okay, so one to three. Because if we lead with what students know, we're going to get further than if we leave with it. If we lead with what educators think students know, mm-hmm. kids know more than what we give them credit for. And so, if we were to lead with their skills or knowledges instead of, um, you know, what the uh, government of Canada tells us that we should know at this grade, I think that would change uh, direction of education, and then um, have. Um, educators not spend as much time um, assessing or thinking about report cards or you know um, who how am I going to write this appropriately or what this grade is to try and get that mindset out of of assessment and think more in terms of you know a- application of skill like that the child has a skill can they apply it great let's move into the next you know let's push them forward in that direction um, rather than in a grade specific or an assessment specific way. 
I started saying educators feel an urgency, right, to take action and to move forward and to learn. But I think what they also need to recognize is that we need to go slow, right, that there is an urgency to learn, but we need to do this slowly and we need to do alongside, as Kyle was saying. Um, and I think coming back to what we've heard others <coughs> say, right, there's the mistakes that we make now we're not going to have time to fix in the future, right? So we can't continue to make those errors so it is working alongside, it's shifting the way we look at our roles as educators and seeing the whole person, the whole human in front of us uh, and bringing heart, right? bringing heart into education. For me, I would say, I, I, you know, once again, as I mentioned, that um, I think it's very crucial to bring in that culture, that culture piece for the students, you know, ways of being ways of knowing, of really letting, of really educating them. I hate to say that, right? But uh, of, of living a, a good life, walking that path and what that means, instead of just knowing who you are, but not knowing who you are. I think that is one of the most mm-hmm. crucial things is to bring in more of those cultural pieces, those teachings. Um, I don't know letting them know or teaching them how to build their own regalia that you know because i'm getting questions about that where do i buy this or you know how it's just like you know you make your own you know and teaching them those things right um but yeah i think that really needs to be supported can i add too that we need a space yes right we need a space to gather we need a space in york region that is going to support spaces um, that aren't like a school. Yes. And so for me, I mean, because I'm coming to the end of my tenure here, um, I, I really think that is what comes next. Um, is but the, again, as Carolyn said, it's not it's not to move quickly. It's to move deliberately mm-hmm. towards our own space, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. knowing that it needs two sides. Mm-hmm. And we've said that before. Carol and I have talked about this, a learning lodge. It, the learning lodge needs to have a space that is for Indigenous students to come to know who they are in a good way. And the other side needs to be for non-Indigenous folks, students and teachers, to come to know us in a good way as well. But again, it's different because it's not picking up and learning your own ways. It's learning how to respect other people's ways. And for mm-hmm. for our students who've had to spend the whole time of their education learning how to respect other people's ways, for once it would be an opportunity for them to learn their own ways and i think that that really is the next stage because um, we can't teach our stuff in our schools we keep trying and it doesn't work because we keep running into conflict with everybody else who's in that space who's trying to do non-indigenous education i think about the time that we do drumming in schools and we have to be worried about making too much noise which is strange if you think about it because the whole purpose of making drums and using a drum is to make noise it's counterproductive Um, so those are those things I think that's the next stage is for us to figure out and I'll go back 51 years ago right 51 years ago uh, Assembly of First Nations in its earlier version said Indian control of Indian education Mm -hmm. we are coming to that point where we need to be in control of our own education um, on our lands. We are not exotic. This is where we come from. This is our space and place. We're not going to become like everybody else. And I have no expectation that others will become like us. I just expect that they will learn to respect us in a good way. 
And with that, I think we'll wrap it up. Miigwech, everybody. Miu. Thank you for joining us for TuneIn YRDSB. Please join us next time to continue the conversation.